Hi, and welcome to episode 17 of Cavalier Cast The Civil War in Words, a podcast which explores anything and everything to do with the wars of the three kingdoms. I'd like to give a warm welcome to those new listeners who have joined. In the last month, Cavalier Cast has been ranked number 94 in the UK's Apple History podcast charts, as well as number 78 in Denmark and 72 in Ireland. It's great to see this fascinating history being enjoyed in so many different countries, from the United States, Australia and Canada, to Germany, New Zealand, Norway, Serbia, Spain, Sweden and the United Arab Emirates. Feel free to get in touch with any feedback you have or suggestions for future Civil War topics. Your input is really appreciated. In today's episode, I'll be looking at the Levellers, a 17th century political movement whose goals were very much ahead of their time. Some of their beliefs went on to be realised in the evolving political and electoral reforms of the 19th century. But in the 1640s, with a war between king and parliament, the leveller story is often sidelined. They fought for democracy as they understood it. Without them, who knows how the civil wars might have ended. Last year I saw a fun quiz online that aimed to predict your civil war allegiance, and almost everyone who took it came out as having a majority of leveller sympathy. If any of us apply the luxury of what we're used to today and our 21st century outlook to that question, you can see just why the results were so overwhelmingly leveller. Who nowadays could oppose that famous speech of the leveller and parliamentarian Colonel Thomas Rainsborough, who said, quote, I think that the poorest he that is in England hath a life to live as the greatest he. It's frequently given that the civil wars were battles for democracy. The leaders of Parliament as freedom fighters struggling against a tyrannical king. But this is incorrect. Neither King Charles or the leaders of Parliament's cause, nor Oliver Cromwell, who later became head of state, fully supported the core beliefs of the levellers. But the war did give the levellers the opportunity to get their manifesto, the freedom of the people, to a wider audience, and greatly influenced the outcome of the civil war, even if those wars ended with the three kingdoms being further away from democracy than ever. The levellers sowed the seeds of democracy. John Rees is a British political activist, academic and writer. He's currently a visiting research fellow at Goldsmiths, University of London. One of his books, The Leveller Revolution, explores their cause in more detail. So welcome to Cavalier Cast, John. It's a pleasure to chat to you today. Very welcome. When did you first become interested in the 17th century? Oh, it's been a lifelong interest, really. I mean, from a teenager, I was uh, always uh, fascinated by this uh, by this period, and I've been uh, reading about it in a kind of um, general sense all my life. Um, but back in uh, 2009, I had the opportunity to go and do some doctoral research on the levellers at uh, Goldsmiths under Ariel Hassian, and um, from that uh, came the book uh, The Leveller 
um, revolution that Verso published in 2016. And I was also involved in organizing the Lilburn 400 uh, conference, which celebrated uh, the leader of the Levelers um, on this 400th anniversary. And I've been involved in, in Levelers Day at Burford. So more recently, I've had a, a much more kind of extensive engagement with um, the Levelers and the period than I had before. What was it that actually drew you to the Levelers? Well, you know, I, I have, uh, in another part of life, I've always been a, a, an activist, a political activist myself on the left, and um, therefore the, uh, the levellers were a natural point of interest because in many ways they are the, the birth of um, systematic um, radical political organisation, um, as well as the kind of inventors of a, of a democratic discourse um, among ordinary people. So they were a kind of um, naturally interesting um, group for me. Could you tell us who the levellers were um, and what were their aims? Well, uh, they emerged um, from the most radical wing of the parliamentarians during the uh, First Civil War. Um, many of them had uh, prehistories as underground printers or as um, radical uh, religious um, activists and uh, many of them then were part of the parliamentarian armies during the first civil war itself um, and out of those kind of um, networks of cooperation producing illegal pamphlets and participating in the huge crowds and demonstrations that surrounded Westminster at the beginning of the civil war um, they began to come together as a kind of propaganda collective. I think the, the, the historian Jason Pieces used that phrase about them, and it's a, it's a felicitous phrase. It, it does capture what they were doing. And then um, through the debates that took place at the end of the uh, First Civil War about what should be done with the king, about what kind of society um, they were going to try and construct about what the constitution, the political constitution of the country should be, um, they became a, a, a very definite um, and recognisable both for their friends and their enemies as a political organisation with its own programme, its own membership, its own subscription fees, its own publications. And they played a, a, a crucial role in the, in the final declaration of um, the Republic in 1649. Excellent. So quite an organised movement then by the sounds of that. Yes, very much so. I mean, the whole business of producing uh, printed material, petitions, uh, pamphlets, uh, broadsides and so forth requires organisation. Um, you have to, it has to be written, it has to be proofread, it has to be typeset, it has to be printed, it has to be distributed and money is needed for all these things. So in a way, if you're going to do this, uh, and you don't have the, the largesse of uh, rich benefactors, which they, they certainly didn't, um, then you require political organisation. Did they want to extend suffrage to women? Uh, they no. were the first people to advocate uh, universal male suffrage, but the the structure of 17th century society barely allowed you to think in terms of women as independent political 
actors, although through the Ladla movement, um, many women did become activists in their own right, collecting petitions, appointing ward captains in the in the cities of London. Um, indeed, there were later on some women-only demonstrations in defence of John Lilburn and the other Leveller leaders. So although they participated as activists, um, it was never raised um, as uh, a question that they should have the have the vote, partly because of the household structure uh, in the in the 17th century. You know, we're used to talking about patriarchy as a kind of synonym for women's oppression or sexism in our age, but patriarchy in the 17th century was a a much heavier stone for women to lift because the household economy meant that. Um, the head of household, the male head of household, was not just, uh, it wasn't just kind of description that they played a dominant role in the domestic sphere. The household was the workplace and the apprentices who were um, living with um, the masters lived in the household. So head of household was to be head of business, uh, head of the workforce and head of the domestic realm all at the same time. And in the political realm, it was automatically assumed that the head of household represented the entire household, women, apprentices, um, politically. And therefore, it was very difficult to even to imagine the idea of women's suffrage in the way that it later kept, became to be understood. This was a quite a, a big step anyway, wasn't it, about universal male suffrage? Yes, I mean, it was an absolutely uh, huge um, political bombshell to even talk like that. One of the questions from the listeners was, um, would the levellers have allowed Catholics to vote? Most of them not. Some, uh, some allies of the levellers, like um, the MP uh, Henry Martin, did advocate a, a very wide uh, toleration. But um, I think what you have to understand about Protestantism and Catholicism in the period of the Civil War was it, it, that, that to be opposed to Catholics participating in the society wasn't sort of um, a simple form of um, religious bigotry. The threat of Catholic armies being brought either from Ireland or the continent in to fight against Parliament during the Civil War was a real one. And um, parliamentarians knew from the King's correspondence that that was one of the things that he was attempting uh, to do. Obviously, um, the whole notion of a Protestant Church of England um, was only 100 years old, and the Catholic threat to it, you know, dramatised by the gunpowder plot, was real in Europe. Of course, there was a huge battle between Protestantism and the Catholic powers uh, going on for the Thirty Years' War during the period of the English Revolution. So um, to be against Catholicism was to be against the kind of what was perceived as kind of international reactionary force. It would be rather like being, I don't know, opposed to American imperialism today. Uh, it wasn't simply a religious um, bigotry. It was something that had a, a, a global, social, political, economic meaning. And you've touched on it earlier, but when was the the actual time when the levellers' ideas for political reform first appeared? 
well, uh, they came they came out of uh, what was called resistance theory um, in the in the parliamentarian camp, and that was the idea that that any citizen, but particularly a parliament, had the right to resist uh, a corrupt uh, or malignant monarch. And out of that um, developed the idea, well, who should be doing the resisting? Should it just be parliament or should it be ordinary people as well? And so from that came the idea of popular agitation, popular mobilisation, popular political discourse, um, popular pamphlet production and petitioning and demonstrating. And so it was out of that. And that, of course, became a, a necessity during the war, because you had to, if you want to win a war, you have to mobilise people to fight, to fight it on your side. And you have to mobilise more of them and more enthusiastically than the other side does. And so the whole world of popular mobilisation and popular politics uh, opened up, and the levellers were very much at the centre, at the centre of that. And of course, the, their critics, among the moderates on the parliamentarian side, and even more among the royalists, were always carrying on about how these were just, you know, um, uh, Tom the tapster and Dick the door sweeper, and uh, the, the, those are direct quotations from uh, royalist material. Uh, how mechanic people were preaching and, uh, and and fighting, and they were just the kind of common herd. This was very much part of the, of the discourse directed at parliamentarians as a whole, and particularly at the levellers. Yeah, that's it. So, so really, they they really came quite strongly onto the scene uh, at the start of the war. That yes, well, all through mm. that initial period of mass mobilisation that, that essentially ended by driving the king out of. Uh, out of London and to establish his new capital at Oxford, the levels were very much part of that of that process. And then, when the parliamentarian camp began to divide between those who really only wanted the war to be a kind of um, armed negotiation with the king prior to um, returning into the throne on more reasonable terms, and those who thought the war had to be fought to the to the finish, including at that point Cromwell, of course. Um, the levellers were very much part of that second group. In fact, Lilburn was working as a kind of political agent of Cromwell in the Eastern Association during the uh, during the Civil War. And then the whole business of pamphlet production and who the pamphlets were aimed at, who their political enemies were, began to shift from not just being royalists and uh, and, and people defending the privileges of the monarchy uh, in general, but to those people who were um, if you like, uh, as far as the levellers were concerned, moderating or attempting to soften the stance of Parliament, who didn't really want to fight the war uh, to the finish. Um, you know, when Cromwell said, I, was a, I would as soon discharge my pistol upon the king as upon any other man, uh, the levellers were definitely in that category. So they're often overlooked in, in some of the Civil War histories. Um, but how big a movement were they? Oh, I think they were a very considerable, uh, a very considerable movement, uh, and you get this from the the degree um, of kind of recognition that the term leveller had, or that, for instance, the name of John Lilburn, the most famous leveller, had. Nobody had to explain when they wrote in a in a political pamphlet who they meant by John Lilburn. Everybody knew who John Lilburn um, was. So there was a a very high degree of uh, of recognition, and also if you look at some of the the scale of the 
of the demonstrations, you know, tens of thousands of people when um, the whole society only numbered five million. So you're talking about figures that would, would, if they were repeated proportionately today, would be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people demonstrating. Um, you've got print runs on the petitions of, of 20,000, sometimes 100,000 is mentioned. I mean, that would be a massive petition by today's political standards, never mind about in a society, as I say, with a with a fraction of the population. So, yes, I think they were a considerable political organisation. And did they have a defined leadership? I mean, you've mentioned John Lilburn there. Yes, uh, they did. There was John Lilburn, as I've mentioned, um, the the printer and polemicist uh, Richard Overton, probably the most wealthy of the levellers, the merchant venturer William Walwyn, very careful, considered pamphleteer, very logical in his arguments. Um, there were the people who were the, the treasurers of the leveller party, uh, Thomas Prince and uh, Samuel Chidley, and his mother, uh, Catherine Chidley, who was a considerable political activist in her own uh, in her own right. So these and some of the printers, like William Larner, yes, they were well known to the authorities certainly, and uh, and and reasonably well known, as I say, to a, a politically engaged public. John Lilburn, so he he's a County Durham man like me. Um, could you could you give a bit of a potted history of Lilburn? Yeah, so the family are a minor gentry family up in the northeast, as you say. Um, mothers served at court, so um, but Lilburn is a, a second son, so he's sent to London as an apprentice. As second sons often were, in fact, second sons were a kind of recognised term in the 17th century, a bit like angry young men was a, a recognised term in 1950s Britain. They were people who were probably a bit discontented that they weren't going to directly inherit the family's wealth, were sent off to um, train with a with a master. Um, uh, Lilburn ended up with Thomas Hewson, who was a mercer in, uh, in what's now Cannon Street or London Stone, as it was known then. So he's mixing with quite a radical group of people, the, the young apprentices of London at this, uh, at this time. He's introduced to uh, John Bastwick, who is one of the um, radical Puritan figures who's printing and importing um, radical religious um, literature illegally from Holland. Lilburn becomes engaged in this as well. Uh, he's arrested, betrayed by a, a, a colleague, arrested by the stationers' company, the agents of the stationers' company, hauled before um, the Star Chamber, the prerogative or uh, no jury court. Um, he refuses to testify to it um, because he says no freeborn Englishman should be forced to testify against themselves, which was the main way in which convictions were got in the, in the Star Chamber. For this, he's uh, imprisoned in the Fleet Prison, tied to the back of a cart or to the arse end of a cart, as he put it, whipped with a three-thonged a knotted leather whip all the way from the fleet, which is at the eastern end of Fleet Street now, all the way to Westminster, stuck in the pillory. He's still chucking illegal pamphlets from his coat pockets as he's in the pillory, making speeches. And from that moment on, he's famous uh, to the London crowd, only released from the fleet by um, the Long Parliament when it meets, joins the army, 
uh, is captured at Brentford, released because Parliament threatens to kill royalist prisoners if Lilburn isn't released by the royalists, um, then joins uh, Cromwell in the Eastern Association and becomes a, a key political activist, a key political figure, and pretty much the most famous of the levellers. Were there any influential or high-profile people that espoused the cause? Yes, some, but not many. Um, so uh, Henry Martin, I've mentioned, was uh, um, probably the only MP in the Long Parliament who was, in principle, a Republican at the at the first meeting of the Long Parliament and a, a tremendously radical uh, figure, as I've said, somebody mm. who believed in widespread religious toleration for Catholics and Jews, as well as for uh, all uh, varieties of Protestant, uh, a Republican, uh, and one of the people that signed the King's death warrant as well. So uh, he was um, he was an ally, an advocate, and defender of the Levellers in Parliament, probably the only MP to systematically be so. Um, and then in the New Model Army, uh, Colonel Thomas Rainsborough, essentially the army's uh, most effective siege master, um, was the uh, highest ranking officer to support uh, the Levellers. But what they didn't have was, as many radical MPs and others did, they didn't have a kind of hinterland of uh, family networks engaged in politics and business on whom they could rely. You know, it's famously said that Cromwell was linked to a great cousinage, you know, that he could look around the House of Commons and see relatives, you know, near and far from his own family on the on the benches. And that wasn't just true of him. That was true of many of the MPs. They were a pretty closely knit gentry operation. But the levellers came from a sort of lower rank of the society. And, that, and that's one of the reasons why they had to rely on voluntary political association, political organisation in the modern in the modern sense. And, and levellers, I mean, we've mentioned Puritans a couple of times there. Um, is it mainly Puritans equals levellers, or was it more of a variety? Uh, yeah, pretty exclusively, and, and pretty exclusively a particular sort of Puritan as well. Uh, and those would be the kind that were certainly uh, very much in favour of abolishing the hierarchy of archbishops and bishops as it then existed in the Church of England. Um, some would have been, like Cromwell, uh, an independent, i.e. somebody who believed that the congregational churches should have a wide degree of independence within a national church structure. And many of them, Richard Overton, Lilburn himself, um, were sectarian religious figures, i.e. people who believed in the gathered churches, that the congregation should be uh, discrete, self-governing bodies with uh, no authority uh, ruled over them by a national uh, by a national church, and those people would have been at the most radical and militant end of Puritanism. And if we move to the 1647 Putney debates now, so so they took place over 12 days. But could you sum up their purpose? Well, the army was always a a political body. Um, as one of the soldiers' declarations put it at the time, we are no mercenary army, uh, but an army drawn together by an act of parliament. In other words, it was the armed wing of the parliamentarian 
cause. And uh, the experience of war, of course, often politicizes, and it certainly did the ranks of the new model army. And of course, after the war, there was a huge uh, question hanging over the whole society. How will it be organized politically now? What will we do with the king? And the Putney debates were called together partly to resolve those issues. But they had a more proximate cause as well, and that is that the moderates in Parliament had tried to get rid of this very political army. They tried to either disband the regiments or to send them to fight in Ireland. And that had caused a, a army-wide mutiny. And the regiments... Um, dismissed the calls from Parliament to disband, and then they elected their own representatives, the so-called agitators, um, which didn't quite have the the modern meaning. It simply meant representative. Um, But that was an absolutely groundbreaking democratic moment. No army had ever done this before in the entirety of military warfare no such democratic body as agitators had ever existed. And these people came to Putney um, and sat in the room with the highest commanders, Thomas Fairfax, uh, Oliver Cromwell. Fairfax wasn't there for most of it, actually, he was ill. But uh, with Henry Art and and with London levellers as well uh, to debate what the settlement of the nation should be. So the important point about Putney is that the people who were in the room had arrived by an absolutely extraordinary revolutionary process. Yeah, so, and, and was it um, was it the likes of the grandees like Fairfax and Cromwell who were instrumental in in allowing them, you know, into the Putney debates or, or forming it together? I don't think they had a lot of choice. Right. Uh, I mean, they, they they were trying to get to the head of their own army when an entirely separate. Um, democratic command structure had just arisen as part of a nationwide mutiny. So they were, the idea that they could have not engaged with this would have been to lose control of the entire military operation. It's not just a simple uh, debate, isn't it? Sitting around the table having a chat. This is this is um, the army's make or break. Yes, and and you can hear them. They're, they're deciding, among other things, whether or not the army should advance on London and essentially take the capital by force or not. So it's not it, it it's not a sort of constitutional debate in the sort of academic seminar sense of it. It's it's purpose and agency welded together. They not only are discussing what they should do; they very definitely have the means to do it um, at hand. You know, they go back to the regiments and report to the people who elected them what's been said and what we're going to do so at at this stage you really do have parliament the old army as such and then this uh new breakaway maybe leveler uh, component with uh elected representatives you've got like the three sort of different wings there haven't you yes uh and and it's and this is the interesting thing about the course of the english revolution it's really the leveler component uh, or the, the kind of militancy that it represents uh, that becomes dominant. Cromwell and Arton are very much opposed to the Levellers' Agreement of the people at Putney, but a year or so later, they're adopting its same principles and the same hard line towards um, Charles I that they've been absolutely desperate to avoid taking at Putney. 
uh, and ultimately, of course, uh, Cromwell and Arton decide that they can have a republic without democracy, as opposed to a republic with democracy, which was the, the Leveller programme. So were the army grandees, so Fairfax, Cromwell, Ayrton, really willing to negotiate further with the Levellers? Or were the debates really just a ruse to string the Levellers along and keep unity within the army? Well, of course, the, the, the way the Putney debates ended was that Cromwell promised the Levellers that there would be a rendezvous of the whole army and that the agreements of the people would be discussed at that rendezvous. In the event, they double-crossed the Levellers and called three separate rendezvous of the army. Um, the first of those takes place at uh, Corkbush Field in Ware, and some regiments mutiny and turn up. They aren't supposed to be at this rendezvous, but they mutiny and turn up at the rendezvous anyway um, with the levellers' agreement of the people stuck into their hat bands. And Cromwell and the senior officers ride into the regiments with their swords drawn and pull the agreement of the people out of their hats. Uh, they threaten to execute three of the ringleaders. Um, they force them to draw lots. Um, only one of them is executed by the two others. Uh, so there's a, a huge uh, confrontation, um, which is um, only resolved in blood by uh, Private Richard Arnold being shot, essentially, on the officer's command. So that they've, they've broken, really, with any agreement with the, with the levels of that at that point and they're still pursuing the idea that they can come to an agreement with the uh with the king right. what blows that up is is these charles is not for the first time intransigent stance and particularly of course the um the second civil war grand to call it second civil war it's a series of royalist revolts around the country and it doesn't take long for the new model army to polish them off but politically, um, that's devastating uh, to Charles's cause and to the cause of all the moderates, the Scots, the Presbyterians in Parliament, uh, the wavering grandees who thought that some deal could be done with Charles. Uh, it proves that what Edward Sexby, one of the agitators at Putney, had said is if we carry on debating, the king will come in and decide which of our throats to cut first. And it certainly looked like that was an accurate prediction by the time they got through the Second Civil War. So the Second Civil War destroyed Charles's credibility and the credibility of those trying to come to an agreement with him from Parliament's side. And then, and then Corkbush Field, was that um, just an attempt by the army reader or the grandees just to try and uh, split the, um, the level of movement? Yes, it's a cl it's a classic divide and rule, divide, rule and suppress technique. Yeah. Um, and if we, so, we fast forward now to 1648, um, Parliament and, and the new model army are further apart than ever. The political crisis deepened when Parliament came really close to agreeing a peace treaty with the king. And then we have Pride's Purge. Um, so could you just tell me uh, briefly about what happened? Well, essentially, this is the army high command responding to the enormous pressure they've been put under by the leveller inspired petitioning campaign of the autumn of 1648 
And as I've said, by this stage, Ireton really has come over to an understanding which is much closer to the level of position at Putney than he was at the time. And that is that there can't be a settlement with the king. There has to be a fundamental break here. And uh, if we leave it to the to the moderates in Parliament or to the Scots, we'll have the king back on the throne. And I think they rightly foresaw that Sexby was right, that the king would indeed, from that position, launch a counter-revolution in which their necks would be on the line, if not on the gallows. So uh, their version of dealing with this is to send Colonel Thomas Pride down to Parliament to exclude the moderate. Uh, MPs who want to do a deal with the king to keep a, a, a kind of core of the radicals um, as the majority in parliament to set up the High Court of Justice to try the king and then ultimately um, to execute him. If we, if we move to after the king's execution, so in May 1649, there, there was a, another level of mutiny in the army at Banbury. Um, so can you tell me about the reasons behind that mutiny? Well. Um, Things moved very quickly um, after Pride Purge and after the kings uh, executed in January 1649. And the, the levelers very quickly become aware that the kind of democratic version of a republic which they favour isn't going to be the one that Cromwell enacts, that there's going to be a, an undemocratic republic resting on the power of the army. And they are as opposed to this, or at least um, as, as strongly opposed to this, as they were to an absolute monarchy under, under Charles. And they begin pamphleteering, because that's what they do. So Lilburn, after a kind of a period where he's quite quiet, goes back up to the northeast to try and settle some property matters and so forth, reappears on the public scene with a pamphlet called uh, England's new chains discovered, and then a second part of England's new chains discovered. And you can see from the title what his argument is. It's meet the new boss, same as the old boss. These chains still exist. We still haven't got an agreement with the people. We still haven't got an expanded electorate, uh, and so forth and so on. And so he and uh, Walwyn and Overton and Thomas Prince are arrested and put in the tower uh, by Cromwell. There's a huge series of uh, demonstrations in their favour, um, uh, often led by women like uh, Catherine Chidley. Um, but there are also a series of revolts, of military revolts. First of all, a revolt in London, in Bishopsgate, uh, led by Robert Lockyer, who's captured and executed in St. Paul's Churchyard by Colonel John Oakey. Um, then in the, the so-called Burford Mutiny, which is really a mutiny among uh, new model army regiments in the west of England. They meet first at Salisbury and then by circuitous routes end up in Burford and are crushed at Burford by Cromwell riding out of London with regiments, of course, to put them down. Um, and then towards the end of the year, an Oxford Mutiny as uh, as well. So there's kind of widespread discontent uh, with the course that Cromwell's taking and the imprisonment of the of the leveller leaders. And towards the end of the year, Lilburn put on trial for his life uh, and the revolts in the army are, are part of that picture, are part of the same picture. Is, are those um, 
mutinies the end of any possible influence the levelers might have had over events? Is that the decline of their influence at that point? It's the end of them as a coherent uh, organisation, political organisation. They don't, they aren't really able to to collectively uh, mobilise on the same on the same level. Lilburn right. is, even though he um, defeats the government uh, at his treason trial, he is exiled, sent into exile. Uh, never really is able to return and, and to play an active political role in British politics again. And the sort of organisation of the levelers is scattered. But leveler ideas do live on. And, and a lot of what, a lot of the kind of legal and political reforms that take place under the Republic are leveler inspired. Um, as, the, as Cromwell died, as a brief uh, resurgence of leveller ideas and activity before the restoration clamps down on them, and they certainly feed into the longer traditions of radicalism, uh, religious toleration, and democratic reform, um, partly through the dissenting churches that become part of, of British radical political culture. And how how did they um, react to the protectorate as well? So when Cromwell became head of state. Well, they've always thought that Cromwell had this tendency within him. At, at one point, Henry Martin, as I said, was the MP most closely associated with the Levellers. At one point, Cromwell uh, mistakenly addresses him as Sir Henry Martin. Uh, no, he hasn't, actually wasn't a knight. His father was, but he wasn't. And uh, Martin was a, a very fast wit. And he replies, uh, sir, when I am a knight, you will be crowned king, which was a very pointed remark, because lots of people thought that Cromwell had these kind of aspirations. Now, as we know, he actually turned down the throne, uh, but uh, he really did have much of the trappings of kingship in the protectorate. So that would not have been a surprise to the levellers. I think the strange thing about the levellers is that without their participation and mobilisation, the revolution that actually happened wouldn't have happened. We would have had Pride's Purge and the Declaration of the Republic and the abolition of monarchy and the execution of the king and the abolition of the House of Lords without that decisive final push in the autumn of uh, 1648, which the levellers were a crucial part of. But the revolution that did triumph wasn't the full revolution that they aspired to, that was outlined in the agreement of the of the people. And obviously that was the dividing line within the parliamentarian camp. The levellers, insofar as they, they could, continued to maintain that perspective while Cromwell and Arton went about the business of constructing a, a republic without democracy. And are the levellers commemorated anywhere today? Well, uh, the levellers have always had a kind of fractured continuity. Whenever there's been moments of radicalism resurging in British history, the levellers have been remembered. So John Wilkes and the parliamentary reformers recalled the levellers. The Chartists and Marx and Engels uh, recalled uh, the levellers, the left in the 20th century has always celebrated 
levelers. And of course, Levelers Day annually in Burford from the 1970s was started by by Tony Benn. So it, it kind of it's the past that relies on conditions in the present to be remembered. And the whole English Revolution, of course, and particularly the Levellers, has very little formal state-sponsored memorialization in this country. Quite different, of course, to the American Revolution in America or the French Revolution in in France. Um, Because we had the Restoration, the state has never been willing, and the official society has never been willing to endorse the memory of the English Revolution in the way that the American and French revolutions are remembered. Well, that's been really, really interesting, John. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time. You're very welcome. I hope you've enjoyed our latest foray into the wars of the three kingdoms, an overlooked but pivotal part of history. And as we've just heard, pivotal in part at least, because of the levellers and their influence down the centuries. You can keep in touch with me on Twitter at 1642author or at facebook.com forward slash Mark Turnbull author. Thanks for listening.